Uh, a round of applause would be great. <laughs> don't pretend you don't know what this is like, you guys. A lot of you preach, and uh, to walk uh, up to stunned silence is not the best start, so thank you for that. Uh, those of you who've been here uh, all day, um, perhaps you're feeling a bit tired, you'll be happy to know then there's not a lot of new content uh, this evening. I could literally stand up and say, uh, yeah, what Steve said, what Leon said, amen. you know, amen. But uh, I'm an African with a microphone and an audience, so uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Africans, uh, have you heard the one about the, uh, the Englishman, the American, and the African? Have you heard that one? Well, that's how it goes. It goes, uh, so the Englishman uh, stood up and spoke from Ephesians 1. Uh, the American stood up and spoke from Ephesians 2. The African got up and spoke from Ephevredves. <laughs> That's, uh, don't sweat it, that's how we roll in Africa, my brother. You, uh, you get up, you speak on your favorite verse, Holy Spirit takes you wherever, a couple of hours later, you sing a few choruses, you know, so uh, we shouldn't be too long, brothers. A couple of hours and we'll be out of here. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You've done us so much good today. Won't you keep doing that? For your glory, amen. amen. Yeah, jokes aside, I really do want to start from my, uh, one of my favorite verses anyway, which is uh, in First Chronicles chapter 12, where we are given a tribe-by-tribe tribe list of the mighty men who gathered to David at Hebron uh, to help him take the kingdom from Saul. We're told that these men who gathered to, to him were men of great military prowess. For example, in verse 25, we're told about the Simeonites who are described as mighty men of valor for war. And uh, also in verse 30, the same thing is said of the Ephraimites. And that was really good for David because when you're going into battle, it's very important to be well-trained and well-equipped and to have men and women who are strong and brave, who've developed an appetite for war, who've been tested before in previous battles. But my friends, battles are not won simply because we're strong, well-equipped, or courageous. Because there was another group of men who presented themselves to David, and uh, they're men who may well have been skilled at war, but that's not what they were known for. They're introduced to us in verse 32 of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times yeah. to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. The men of Issachar brought something quite unique to the table, something indispensable to any battle situation, an understanding of the times, an ability to discern how all of that military might of David's vast army was to be deployed given what God was doing in the nation of Israel and in the nations of the world. You see, church, we can be strong, we can be well-equipped, we can be courageous, but if we do not correctly discern the times, if we do not understand what God is doing in the church and in the nations, we'll win small battles from time to time, while at the same time suffering great losses and conceding much ground to the enemy. 
So when we gather as we have over these 24 and a bit hours, our task is not only to be equipped and to be motivated, but I believe the greater task as we worship together, as we sit under the ministry of the word, as we interact one with another, is to ask this question, to inquire of the Lord, Lord, what are you doing in these days? What are you doing in your church? What are you doing in Africa? What are you doing in the nations of the world? And in view of what you are doing, what would you have us do? How would you have us equip ourselves? How would you have us deploy the strength and courage that you've given to us by your grace so that, to echo the words of the Apostle Paul, we would not run our race in vain? You know what? It's possible to come to a great conference and walk away with a stack of great talks and not have a clue what God was saying. That's why we need to be like the men of Issachar. Gather not just with strength and training and motivation, but with discernment. In all that we've heard, what is God saying? What is the Lord doing? Now, I don't believe any one man can stand up and answer these all-important questions, but what I'd like to do this evening is offer my contribution, which I believe needs to be an ongoing conversation and prayer amongst ourselves. Recently in our church, we uh, ran a course called Praying with Paul, and I notice it's available in the bookshop by uh, D.A. Carson and Brian Tabb. And what they've done is they've pulled out some of Paul's prayers uh, from his epistles, and they've broken them down uh, with a view to unlocking key elements of apostolic prayer. And I was deeply blessed by that. But probably the thing that grabbed me the most is how Paul's prayers were often with an eternal perspective in mind. I'm going to give you an example, Philippians 1, 9 and 10. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So here Paul is praying that their love would abound more and more. And why is he praying that? What's the end goal? Is it because increasing in love would help them to discern what is excellent? Yes, but why? Because there is a day coming, a day that he refers to as the day of Christ, where they will be perfected in love. And what he's saying is, what I'm praying for you is that you would live more and more now as you shall be on that day. He says, there's a day coming where you will be perfected in love. My prayer is, you would live now more and more as you shall be on that day. Paul never uses their past as a reference point for sanctifying prayer. He never says to them, oh, I pray that you would love more than you used to. He doesn't use the culture around them either as a reference point. He never says, oh, I pray that you would love in the same way that the people around you love. Rather, he points them straight ahead. And he says, perfected love is what you are destined for. That is who you are. That is who you shall be when Christ returns. Now pull that reality more and more into your present existence. Now in much the same way I believe as we give ourselves to planting new churches and strengthening existing ones, we should not take our cues from the past, which can lead us to get trapped and enslaved to church traditions where we begin to say things like, but we've always done things this way. Equally, we shouldn't take our cues from the 
uh, culture, the, of the people around us, which can cause us to merely assimilate this humanistic philosophy of self-worship in the name of being culturally relevant. Sure, we'll still sing songs and preach sermons, but essentially what can begin to happen is that we are gathering, we are gathering, we're making sure that the people who are gathering are comfortable in our meetings and are happy to invite their friends to these religious festivities. I want to suggest, brothers and sisters, that a better anchor for us as we consider what our churches should look like not in the past, not in the culture around us, but in the future, in the reality of what we are becoming, in the reality of who we shall one day be when Christ returns in glory. Carson puts it in these words, says the church is to see itself as a heavenly missionary outpost in a lost, dying, and decaying world. I take this to mean that the church doesn't exist just to preach the gospel. The church exists also to demonstrate here and now the full impact of that gospel on humanity. To give a lost and dying world a a taste of heaven as it were. To help people to experience something so otherworldly that it would both confound and amaze all who look upon it. Is that what our churches are like? Or have we got so sucked into the importance of so-called contextualization that all we've ended up doing is reflecting the culture of the people around us? Am I saying that we should ignore our respective context? By no means. What I am saying is that there are certain qualities of the true church that are intrinsic to her identity and mission and as such should never be traded off in the name of being culturally relevant or making the gospel palatable to any group of people. Yes, we need wisdom in application, but let us not be deceived and let us not see people saved to a church that bears no resemblance to the perfected bride of Christ. It's a bit like looking at an an artist's impression of a beautiful house that's going to be built. And, And artist's impressions are always beautiful, aren't they? They're great, they're wonderful. But the thing is this, an impression can only become reality if we, the plans that are drawn up and the materials that are used are in keeping with that impression. Otherwise, it's gonna look nothing like it. But here's where the analogy is turned on its head a bit because the perfected bride of Christ is not merely an impression It's a future reality. And so in a sense, it's our churches that are the impressions. Our churches that are imperfect impressions of the future reality that is the perfected bride of Christ. So this thing, the perfected bride, is a reality. Our churches here and now are but faint impressions in a lost and dying world of that glorious reality that is the perfected bride of Christ, the mature church. And so the question is, to what extent do these faint impressions match the reality that is the perfected bride of Christ? With that in mind, I'll attempt to, what I'll attempt to do in the rest of the message is just take a look at the snapshot 
of that reality that is the bride of Christ. Pastor Leon's mentioned earlier in Revelation 7 and draw four characteristics that we can perhaps use as a plumb line for the churches that we are planting and strengthening. The first two characteristics drawn from verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7, which reads, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. So a quick word about uh, Revelation. As many of you will know, it falls under the genre of writing called apocalyptic literature, which is uh, filled with uh, graphic symbolism. And so as we read it, it's not to be read in a sort of wooden, literal way, otherwise we'll get very confused. And with that in mind, I want to look at four symbols that we see in Revelation 7 that show us something of this mature body of Christ, this mature bride. And my intention is not to exegete the passage necessarily. You had an Acts 29 conference, there'll be no shortage of exegesis, I assure you. I'm looking rather to reflect at what I feel may be the possible implications for us here and now in keeping with this idea of discerning the times, understanding the times that we live in. The first symbol we see there is this great multitude from, uh, of people from uh, every tribe and people and language. And from this, we get our first characteristic of the mature church, of the perfected bride, is that she is a diverse church. Michael Eaton says the following. He says, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has led to an international people coming into being. In the church of Jesus Christ, internationalism is more important than nationalism. Pagans bring divisions among the nations. The gospel of Jesus brings unity among the nations. And that unity is seen supremely in heaven. The people who have been redeemed come from an immense variety of national and tribal backgrounds. But they find their unity in the worship of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you have it. We shall one day be a fully united, fully multinational, multi-ethnic body gathered around the worship of God. That's what we're destined for. That's who we shall one day be. The question is, as present day impressions of that future reality, what does that mean for our churches here and now? What does that mean? The knee-jerk response might be, well, it obviously means that all our churches must be multi-ethnic, multinational, multiracial. That sung worship must be in all different kinds of languages. That our leadership team should be ethnically diverse and so on. And I can see why, why we would respond earnestly in this way. But apart from the fact that in many parts of the world, this is not possible purely for demographic reasons, I think this approach is too simplistic in nature because it focuses on an effect rather than a necessary cause of such an effect. I believe it's far more fruitful to focus on the cause which in turn produces an effect, which if I'm not mistaken, is exactly how the gospel works. You see, the gospel, the work of the gospel in the life of the believer is not in the first instance to bring behavioral change. The gospel completely transforms the heart, which is followed by an ongoing renewal of the mind, which invariably leads to changed behavior. 
The gospel doesn't come to make you behave well. The gospel transforms your heart. As your heart is transformed, there's an ongoing renewing of the mind, which ultimately leads to changed behavior. But as wonderful as, and as neat as that sounds, it's more akin to a violent turning of tables than a civilized conversation with an old friend you haven't seen in a while. And why is that? Because the true gospel challenges and breaks down every man-made prejudice. It conquers unforgiveness and hatred, no matter how seemingly justifiable. It rewires thought patterns that have been firmly established through my upbringing. The gospel messes with my thinking. It redefines my reality. That's not a peaceful little process. That's not a, hey, come, let's have a cup of tea and talk about a few things. It's a table-turning thing. It's radical. It's disturbing. It shakes our world. It opens me up to relationships that outside of Christ were never going to be possible. So although I'm not a fan of social engineering and ethnic quotas on leadership teams and so on, I am a believer in what Michael Eaton refers to as the inevitable consequences of the gospel. I do believe that the gospel we preach, and indeed the way we preach it, must transform the hearts of the people to whom we preach, which in turn must challenge the way they think. And when our people change the way they think, it will affect the kind of people they build relationships with. And when their friendships groups begin to change, so will our churches. And by the way, if they don't see it in you and I, if the gospel isn't having that effect on me, it's unlikely to ever have that effect on my hearers. We preach louder by the way we live and what we say on Sunday morning. Talk is cheap, as they say. A white minister in the city once uh, said to me, a guy I'm getting to know quite well, we had uh, met for a coffee, and he told me about his vision for a multicultural church. And I sat and I listened. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I said, I just have one question for you. I said, tell me, what is the name of your black friend? I don't mean the guy you're mentoring or the family you're helping. You know what a friend is. That thing. Tell me the name of your black friend. You see, if, if we would allow the gospel to do its full work in our hearts, we wouldn't need to engineer our churches. And I can honestly tell you, two of my closest friends are white. <laughs> yeah? And then just, yeah, two. <laughs> two of the inner circle, there's, there's hordes beyond that that I would consider friends. And what do I mean by friend? Listen, because this is very important. These are words that we throw around. A friend, by friend I mean someone who enjoys me as much as I enjoy them. That's right. right? I'm talking about someone who receives as much from me as I receive from them. That's what I mean. And if I may be uh, so bold, I always think, you know, when you're invited to a conference, you never know if they'll call you again, so just fire all your bullets. <laughs> so, at a practical level, if I may be so bold, 
I think the challenge for my white brethren in terms of relationship is getting out of the paradigm of patronizing relationships. Uh Hey, I'm your friend because I can help you. I've got stuff I can give to you, things I can teach you. But uh, every coin has two signs, right? Because I think the challenge for us as, as black guys is that we actually need to believe we have something of value to give. And to give not because I'm black. I'm not here sharing my blackness with you. Right? I'm not here preaching because I'm black. Ross? I'm not here preaching because I'm black. Right? That's why you're here, right? Okay. I'm here because I'm blessed. I'm anointed. I've got something to give. I've got something to share. I've got... And it's because of who I am in God. It's because by the grace of God, I am who I am. Amen. Right? And you receive from me because of something that God's given me that I want to share with you. And as black folk, we need to start believing that actually we've got something to give. We've got something to contribute. And it's not our blackness. It's who we are in God. There's another aspect I want to touch on. Don't worry, this first point is by far the longest point. I know some of you do sermon uh, mathematics, and uh, (laughs) you sort of say, well, you know, he did say four symbols. You know, we're on the first one. He's been going for 20 minutes. Dunk, 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 dunk. No, this is by far the longest point, okay? So relax. So now there's another aspect I want to touch on before I leave this topic of diversity, and that's Eaton's comment about how in the Church of Christ, Internationalism is more important than nationalism. Huh. I don't know what Christian teachings influenced you over the last little while, but for me, over the last five years or so, I've heard a lot about loving your city. Have you heard that too? Yeah. Been drinking from the same wells. There's been a lot about loving your city and making an impact on your city. And by and large, I think that's been a helpful message. So I don't want to take anything away from it so much as I want to add a little something to it. And here's what I want to add. It's not enough to love your city. It's not enough to just love your city. God is much bigger than that. And so is his church. I heard a message two months ago by uh, Reverend Ogalo from Kenya. He's here. Where are you, Reverend? Come on, wave that shiny suit. There you are, my brother. And, uh, and he preached uh, on Paul's vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. Whew. I was sitting, right, it was, uh, it was an AGM, I was, it was sitting on long tables, and he was standing at the head of the table. I was sitting right there next to him. And so all of his fire and passion, I mean, it, it, it penetrated my bones. And he was saying, I'm from Kenya, and he he was saying, in Kenya, this is what we're saying to you, brother. He's saying, come and help us. He said, come and help us. Those words penetrated my bones, and and I knew right then in my spirit that I'm going to go to Kenya. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there, but I just, I'm going. I'm coming to help you. I don't know how I can help. I don't know what I can bring. I don't know what I can give. But those words shook me. They shook my spirit. And, and it's no good to say, yes, but I love Joburg. Yeah. 
I know you need help, but I love Joburg. I love my city. Yeah, well, good for you, but God is bigger than your city. And the work of God is bigger than your city. Must learn to love what God loves. His affections are on the nations. If our impressions are going to match the reality of the perfected bride of Christ, our affections must reflect his affections. That description of a great multitude from every nation and tribe and tongue may not be a physical reality yet, but being a faithful outpost of heaven now means that we, especially as leaders, need to be captivated and anchored in that glorious hope. Second point. So the first one was a diverse church. Second one, a holy church. The second aspect I want us to look at is about this great multitude is that John describes them as wearing white robes. And quite plainly, the symbolism here is that of purity or holiness. And although commentators are divided on whether these robes symbolize justification, which obviously is a free gift to all who believe, or sanctification, the ongoing effort of the justified to overcome sin and opposition, I think it's safe for us, for the purpose of this message, to say that holiness, purity is the sum total of these things. But again, rather than trying to do an exegesis, I want to ask the question, as impressions of the reality, that is the perfected bride of Christ, what does this mean for our churches here and now? What do these white robes mean? And I want to turn to uh, an instruction Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4.16 as a basis of reflection on what I think this means. Paul said to him, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He said, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You might ask, well, what does this verse have to do with holiness? Well, and this is now turning to Steve's message earlier today. People can only know the way to holiness if we teach it to them properly. In other words, if we preach both justification by faith alone in Christ alone and ongoing sanctification and fruitfulness as the evidence of the grace of God and the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, I know how emotional people can get when someone tries to categorize the church using words like black and white, African, Western, urban, rural. So I'll sidestep that and just say in my humble observation, I found that some Christians tend to be weaker on the doctrine of justification where they confuse it with legalism that we heard about earlier today, while others tend to be weaker on the doctrine of sanctification where they confuse it with licentiousness. And now, if we're going to be an effective missionary outpost of heaven, if we're going to reflect something of the holiness and purity of the perfected bride of Christ, we cannot have a church that is steeped in either legalism or licentiousness, or God forbid, both. In terms of legalism, believers must find, it's imperative, believers must find the assurance of salvation only in the finished work of the cross, the finished work of Christ, not through good behavior or keeping the church rules you have church rules? No? Rules about what to eat, how to dress, what to wear, what not to wear, what to drink, what not to drink, how to properly honor the man or the woman of God, and so on. As leaders and teachers of the word, we must not put heavy yokes 
on the people like the Pharisees did and so confused them as to what true righteousness before God looks like. Justification is by faith and faith alone. We'll never have a holy church if we don't understand that. We'll have a legalistic church, people running around trying to earn their place before God. In terms of licentiousness, we must not allow our people to interpret the grace of God as a license to sin. We live in an age where people don't appreciate having their private space invaded. The words private space have become big in our time. Where even as a Christian, what I do with my money, what I do with my talents, what I do with my sexuality is my business. And how I choose to treat my workers, run my family, what I choose to watch on the internet, it's got nothing to do with the church. Now listen, if we take our temperature from the culture around us, we'll tiptoe around these issues because we don't want to get into people's private spaces. And a lot of preachers in this, especially in the northern suburbs, that's what we do on Sunday. We get up and boldly open the word and then we tiptoe around people's private spaces. And all we do is we allow the church of God to become a den of thieves and liars and philanderers and prostitutes, lovers of themselves and money, all the while exclaiming, I'm justified by faith. What I was spoken about earlier is sinning secretly. The church is not your little club. Right? And uh, for those of you who planted churches, you may be aware of, uh, so when we planted, you know, uh, times are really tough in the beginning. We didn't have a planting church. We just were, as us and Jesus. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, Jesus does stuff, but he does leave a lot to you in those early days. Uh, <laughs> one of those things. Um, but... The thing is, when you are in those early days, the hard yards and, and money's tight, you know, and been there, uh, what can happen is, you know, there's a lot of listening to God and praying and faith, but as the financial challenges begin to ease up, you can almost slip into, hey, everything's okay now, we're paying our bills. But the church is not your you know, your little club, it's not your pension fund. It's not like, hey, as long as, as long as we're hitting budget, everything's okay, right? Sometimes we're afraid to scare the sin out of people because they'll run away and take the money with them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So just give them space, all right? <laughs> you can be bold in your study. But get it out of your system. By the time you come to the pulpit, hey, shh, behave. The people paying your kids' fees, you know what I'm saying? Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The bride of Christ will be presented to him in all holiness. Let us become now more and more as we shall be then. 
And for those of us who teach, we do well to know that Paul's instruction to Timothy was to first of all watch his life and then his doctrine. The credibility of the gospel in the eyes of the society we're preaching to rests largely on the integrity of the ministers of that gospel. If our lives are not in keeping with the gospel that we preach, then our preaching will lack any real authority. Number one, diverse, diverse church. Two, holy church. Three, the last two characteristics I want to draw from verses 16 and 17, which reads, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, the sun will not beat upon them, nor scorch any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them into springs of living water. Point number three, the mature church is a caring church. And I want to be careful not to read too much into the text, but I do find it interesting that in the middle of this crazy revelation that Jesus gives to John about this mature church, this perfected bride, missed all of these almighty characteristics of diversity and holiness, he says to John, in effect, how would you notice something about these guys? No one there is hungry. No one is thirsty. No one is exposed to the elements. And again, we come to the question, if on that day, hunger and thirst and exposure shall be completely banished, what does that mean for us now? We who are a sign, remember, of the reality to come. We are the place people come to see, well, what shall it be like in the new heavens and the earth? Well, go and see the church. They're an impression of what it shall be like. Yeah, but I'm reading here that no one's going to be hungry. What does that mean? I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that surely, in the meantime, if we really are a missionary outpost of heaven, and we must do all we can in the preaching of the gospel to conquer hunger and thirst and exposure to the elements, here and now. Is this not why it's written in James 2.15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. One of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need. What good is it? Oh, Bible code. When the Bible says what good is it, it means it's no good. Okay. It's like, some of you are trying, like, trying to work it out well. Um, no, no, no. It just means it's no good. It's no good. Now, you or I might say, hey, but I don't know anyone without clothes and daily food. And if that's the case, well, I have two things to say, and I think one of them is kind. The first thing is that if you and I are really saying that, that we don't know anyone without clothes and daily food, the first thing we need to do is realize what a remarkable achievement that is. Yeah? Living as we do in a country and continent riddled with poverty. It's quite amazing. It means we live our lives a bit like that. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? It must do. 
continent is full of people without daily clothes, without their food, uh, clothes and daily food. It's full of them. And yet we don't know anyone in that situation. It's quite an achievement. But I'm not here to point fingers and take us on a guilt trip. You know the thing with guilt trips? Like all other trips, they come to an end, you know? Let's go home, good cup of tea, you know? Aspirin, go to bed, bang! It's gone. Good as you. Ready for another sermon, bring it on, you know? Guilt trips come to an end. So here's why I have a second thing to say, which is actually two things. I cheated a bit. And it's related to my first point on diversity. Firstly, if the gospel is doing its work in me, right? I'm not talking about you now. If the gospel is doing its work in me, it must, as an inevitable consequence, lead me into some unconventional relationships. Surely. Surely. It must do. Namely, in this instance, with some of the people described in James chapter 2.15. If the gospel's at work, the true gospel, must lead me into some of those relationships. Secondly, you or I may not know someone without clothes and daily food, okay, but I'm willing to bet that there are people in this room who do. In this very room, I'm willing to bet that there are people who know people personally without clothes and daily food, so why not build relationships with those people and help the people they know? It's not that complicated. Isn't that part of why we gather? Right? It's not, it's not really that difficult. Sometimes we, we uh, take the teachings of the word. Think, oh, yeah, that's what the Bible says, man. You know, how, how do we contextualize? And we throw these big words. How, how do we contextualize, contextualize this thing? I mean, how do we earth it? I mean, really, and we have all these meetings and gatherings and prayer. Like, how do we, like, I mean, really, I mean, Jesus said this, right? I mean, I mean, look at the, you know, the, the, the landscape and what's happening in politics. Sure, it's so confused. I'm confused. Are you confused? I'm confused. Let's, let's adjourn. <laughs> you know, and pick this up next month. It's not complicated. It's not. I think we're just lazy sometimes, don't you? By the way, laziness is uh, one of the best known symptoms of being overfed, just saying. Last point, number four, a Christ-centered church. I told you there's nothing new. Verse 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them into springs of living water. Sometimes it's the things that go without saying that need to be said the most, right? Christ is the one at the center of it all. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who brings us into right relationship with God. He's the one who's building his church. He's the one who's perfecting his bride. It is to Christ that the bride is presented in the end. Christ is at the center. Sometimes as church leaders, we build as though we are at the center. Sometimes we do it in ways that are indiscernible perhaps to us. Maybe it's the way we treat the people we lead. 
maybe some of the lovely fancy titles we give ourselves or the special places of honor or the autocratic decisions we make or the glory we take for what God's doing in our ministries. Take your pick. The thing that a lost and dying world most needs to see when they look at the church, this present day impression of this perfect reality is not primarily how diverse we are or how holy we are or how compassionate we are. What a lost world needs to see is Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of our diversity. Jesus at the center of our holiness. Jesus at the center of our compassion. You see, my friends, if we're not a signpost to Jesus, then we're not a signpost to anything at all. In concluding my message, I'd like to take us back where we started, discerning the times. Remember? Favorite verse? Are we aware of what God's doing in his church in these days? Are we aware of what God's doing in Africa? It was the biggest thing on our mind, how many songs we're going to sing on Sunday before we do the notices, and how many after, because that, that can be really confusing. Here's what I believe God's doing today. I believe God's restoring the truth that he only has one church. So while we're all busy trying to make our markers churches and show how we're different from the church down the road, while we're gathering each other into groups, I mean, this group, you're not in that group, that's our group, your group, and God's saying, yeah, well, good for you. As for me, I only have one church. Am I saying we shouldn't organize ourselves? No. I'm saying we should organize ourselves under this single big idea that there is only one church. And that we should talk to each other. We should walk alongside each other and contend together as one man for the faith. We should become together more and more now as we shall be then. These are the kind of churches we're planting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that uh, this is not a big gamble what we're doing. We're not sort of thinking, hey, I hope this works out one day. I hope after all of this effort, all of this sacrifice, I hope something works out. I hope Jesus can pull it off. We're not working with blind hope. We're working towards a perfect master plan.
that glorious body, that glorious bride from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping you, clothed in white. That's a reality. And I'll pray, Lord, this evening that as churches existing and churches in the pipeline, God, that we would be faithful impressions, faithful representations of that glorious reality. We ask this, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. 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 God bless you.